here's the deal. That was a real waste of time, wasn't it? I meant for the hamster. You too, but I meant for the hamster. That hamster is committed, but going nowhere. Fast. Energy is being exerted. There's vision, there's commitment. But that hamster is getting nowhere fast. Do you feel like that hamster? Tonight's message is about hamsters. If you are a Christian, you don't have to feel like that hamster. Because if you're a Christian, God does not have stagnation for you. He has a race for you to run in. And it's a race that is far better than any race imaginable. It's a race we will talk about tonight. It's in the book of Hebrews, the letter of better. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, uh, we will become acquainted, reminded of a race, a God-ordained race that he has for all of his sons and daughters who have come to him by faith. And it is a race that is far better than any other race. So it's in Hebrews chapter 12. We made it, we made it to chapter 12. And uh, if you look at the first word of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, you will see it is the word Therefore, which is a very odd way to begin a new chapter. And nobody uses the term therefore out of context. If later on, as we take leave of one another, you run into a fellow church member in the hall who just comes up to you and without anything else just says therefore and walks away, you're going to really wonder about that person. And so that's the point here. The word therefore makes us wonder, what is it there for? It obligates us at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12 to back up to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, the writer obligates us to back up so as to make some sense of the word therefore. And if you back up to Hebrews chapter 11, you will remember it's a list of names. But not just a list of names. It's a list of the names of those who really, really lived for God. They ran a marvelous race. They didn't spin their wheels. They were not the hamster. They followed God. And as a result, are listed in Hebrews chapter 11 as examples for us to follow. So the word therefore reminds us of these li the list of men and women in chapter 11 who lived by faith. And then we read, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Now, could I admit something to you? Uh, I, for a long while, thought those witnesses are people who do yet, uh, not yet know the Lord, who are watching the lives of people like you and I to see if he's worth following. So I saw this in an evangelistic sense. And then I realized, boy, am I wrong. See, the therefore does not connect us with unsaved people watching us. The therefore connects us as saved people with those in chapter 11 who have lived by faith. 
the folks listed, men and women listed in chapter 11, those are the ones referred to here as this great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Now, if you've been in a courtroom lately, uh, you know that the role of the witness is to be examined by the jury. Uh, the witness is not there to examine the jury, and in the same sense, these witnesses are not looking at us. I think that's a misinterpretation. Fanciful, but I don't think it's accurate based on the context. No, a witness does not evaluate the members of the jury. The members of the jury look to the witnesses. A witness is someone who can tell you what he or she has seen or heard or knows, and you make some decisions about the testimony of the witness. And these witnesses are those folks in chapter 11. There are so many of them, they're the equivalent of a cloud surrounding us. They're just that available so that we could look to them, examine their lives, and come to some conclusions about the kind of life they live. Therefore, since we have all of these who stand by ready to witness to something, we ought to pay attention to them. They are there not to examine us. They are there for us to examine them. And what is it we are to examine? Does a life of faith in the presence and promises and provision of God, does it pay off? These witnesses in chapter 11 would say, amen, absolutely. They would say, it's tough going to follow this God, but we wouldn't trade our relationship with him with anything else. We ran after him. That's the race he called us to. We focused our attention on him. We knew he is. We know he is here to provide for us. We know his promises can be counted on, and we are willing to be witnesses to that fact. So if you Christians, centuries removed from us, are wavering in your faith and wondering whether it's really worth continuing in the race, we are here as witnesses to tell you, you betcha, it is really, really worth it. And so if you remember the ones who are in chapter 11, it was folks like Abel, who offered to God a far better sacrifice by faith. There was Enoch, who by faith walked with God. There was Noah, who by faith in God's command obeyed him in the face of terrible uh, humiliation by his peers and built this ark because God told him to. There was in that chapter Abraham, who by faith left old and familiar territory and went to a new land he had never been to. And by faith, this Abraham, merely because God told him to do it, was willing to offer his own son Isaac in sacrifice. In that chapter, as part of this cloud of witnesses willing to stand by and say God can be trusted and counted on, you ought to lean on him, your faith in him will not be misplaced, it was also Sarah, and she couldn't bear children. It was late in life. She was barren. God said, you'll have a child. At first, it seemed so remotely possible, she laughed. It wasn't a good thing. But she grew in faith and ultimately believed God. 
and she birthed a child in her advanced years. In that chapter was Moses. You remember him. Good night. Raised amongst Egyptian nobility. He could have laid claim to all kinds of authority and power and privileges. But Hebrews 11 told us, no, Moses chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And we would say, Moses, you said no to all kinds of things. Was it worth it? And Moses, as a witness, would say, I'm glad you checked me out. Yes, it's worth it. It's worth it to do things God's way. And then there was Gideon and Samson and David and Samuel and manifold others in chapter, you see, they're the great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Okay, since we have this great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, what's the point? What are we to do? To find the answer, you have to get to the middle of verse 1 because that's where the primary action verb is. The middle of verse 1 says this is what we are to do. We are to run. We are to run. That's the principal action of verse 1. In light of this cloud of witnesses, we are to run. Literally, you can if you want, but no, not literally. Metaphorically. You know what the writer of Hebrews, whoever he is, is telling us? Uh, he's writing to ancient readers who are very, very familiar with Greco-Roman athletic events. Have you heard of the Olympics? They existed even in this day. And foot racing was very, very popular amongst ancient Greeks. They trained for it, uh, competed, got it down to a science, disciplined themselves to be effective runners. And so the writer of Hebrews is speaking uh, the language of the people of the day, and he's saying to them, because we have such a great cloud of witnesses standing by ready to testify that it pays to run after God, we ought to run the race. And so he's using this foot racing metaphor so as to suggest to Christians that we're in a race of a far more important kind as well. And in order to run this race well, this is what we're told to do. Now you can back up in verse 1. We were told what to do, run the race. Now we're told how to do it. Lay aside every encumbrance. Uh, athletes, runners, oftentimes run in weights, in training. But then they take them off in competition. Uh, a uh, world-class runner runs light. These ancient Greek world-class runners, they ran so light, they were naked. Uh, you can see this depicted on ancient Greek pottery, uh, though I don't recommend it, but that, that's how they... See, they wanted to shed absolutely every bit of unnecessary weight, and by the way, the, the word for encumbrance is also weight. They, they wanted to run without being tied down, encumbered. They wanted to run so as to win. And so uh, participants in ancient Olympics had to swear to the uh, authorities that they were in training for at least 10 months before competition. You couldn't just walk up on race day 
and say, I want to compete. No, you had to demonstrate some commitment, seriousness to the task, uh, such that you had to be in pretty rigorous training for 10 months. And the last month uh, had to be under the tutelage of an instructor authorized uh, by the race officials who would call you to task with regard to your diet and your exercise and your relationships and all this kind of stuff. They disciplined themselves, you see, so as to remove all kinds of unwanted weight. It's a reference to superfluous body weight. They were in training so as to run unencumbered. They did not want to be slowed down in their race, which leads me to this question which I put to you, and I assure you I put it to myself at the same time. It's this. What slows you and I down in the far better race to which we are called to run in? What keeps us from undistractedly, wholeheartedly pursuing Jesus Christ and his plans and his purposes for us? You're moving, but what is slowing you down? What's the encumbrance? In this case, it may not be a wicked thing, though it is a weighty thing. It's a good thing, waging war against a far better, more excellent thing. What is it that's slowing you down? Uh, a million years ago when I was in the military, uh, a guy, friend, was, got orders elsewhere. He had uh, an aquarium fish tank, and he was moving overseas, wanted to go light, and he offered that aquarium to me, fish tank, no charge. Speaking my language. And, uh, and I, I actually prayed about it. He said, what are you praying over that for? I was a relatively new Christian. I was led to the Lord by another military member, and uh, I was just so glad to be redeemed in the race. And I made up my mind as a single guy in the military with limited responsibilities, I wanted to maximize that time to get to know God through the Word of God. That was my goal. I didn't know exactly how to do it yet. I needed lots of help, and there were wonderful people to help me. But that was my goal. I wanted to grow. I was told that the Bible is like food, spiritual food, and I thought, I am really hungry. I, I want to know how to, how to chew on that food, digest it. And so I said to my friend, I really appreciate this. Thank you so much, but, but I'm going to decline your offer. You see, the fish tank was not a wicked thing. It was, at that time, to me, a weighty thing. Now, don't make that application for yourself. I'm just saying at the time, that's, there's nothing wrong if you have a fish tank. Don't misunderstand. At the time, I just, I didn't, I wanted to run light. I wanted to run the race unencumbered. Uh, and so I declined the, so, so you see, the first instruction given to those exhorted to run the race is, uh, is to let go of every encumbrance. So what is it that's encumbering you? See, it's a subtle thing. It, it, it is not necessarily a blatant 
sin area. It's more dangerous than that. It may be a, is it too much recreation? Is it, I mean, I don't know. You see, you should ask God to search your heart. I think he'll do it and lovingly help you to run a little more unencumbered. So that's the first thing. Run the race, uh, laying aside every encumbrance. But then there's a second thing we are to lay aside uh, to run well also. It is the sin which so easily entangles us. Ah. So that's not quite as optional as the encumbrance. If you want the fish tank, you got the fish tank. You didn't violate a commandment. But here we're talking about violation of, of the moral strictures of God, sin. Uh, you cannot, if you're a Christian, you cannot have more of God's favor than you presently do. It, it, it just comes unconditionally because you're his child. But sin, you know how it is, could really, really, really slow you down in the race. You see how it says, and the sin it doesn't say a sin, which so easily entangles. See how it says the, a definite article? It, it, that seems to imply that what the writer is getting at is that your sins are different than my sins. You know what this is saying? You runners in the race, you need to examine yourself. What is the sin that you are more susceptible to than any others? What is the sin uh, by which you can be so easily entangled? You see, it's different for each of us. A lot has to do with age. The sin that tempts you now at this point in your life maybe wouldn't have earlier on. I don't know. Sometimes it's experience, for instance. It, uh, if, if you've used um, drugs or alcohol, then it's an, it's an area of sin you're going to be more susceptible to than another might be. You see, life experience uh, can, can make you more susceptible. But that's the thing. Study your, what is the sin? What is it? Is it, uh, is it lust? Is it, uh, is it pornography? You know, uh, some of these things, some of you say, that doesn't tempt me at all. That's, that's the point. What does? What is it? Is it, is it withholding um, money when it is yours, privileged to give? To the cause of Christ. That's, it's a sin area. You know what I mean? So, so, so ask God to search you out. Oh, God, what encumbers me from running the race swiftly? And, oh, God, what is that sin area that uh, can so easily entangle me? I've identified those areas in my own life, and I really take pains uh, not to get close <laughs> to those areas. I draw a line in the sand. Let's say this is the line I don't want to cross. I draw it way back here because I can't afford to get this close. I think I may go over. You know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Mine is plenty weak, just like yours. So I, I draw the line way back here. I don't want to test myself to see if I'm strong enough to say no. I just don't get... One time when I was in the military, the, a guy who was helping me grow, said, Stuart, here's a formula you need to memorize. He said, desire plus opportunity equals disaster. So you have to deal with those two elements in the equation, your desire. Ask God to give you desires for the things that please him, not fleshly desires. And opportunity, that's just a very practical thing. With the temptation, you see, God provides the way of escape. Don't put yourself in an opportune situation, you see. See what I mean? 
So, so that's, that's what we, we do. Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and having rid ourselves of that which holds us back, we can run with endurance. That's the exhortation. In ancient Greece, they had different kinds of races, different distances. They had, they had sprints. Those required speed. And then they had marathon races. You know the word marathon comes from a city in ancient Greece. Marathon. They had marathon races, 26 miles. Those required not so much speed. They, those required endurance. Uh, what do you think the writer of Hebrews is likening the Christian life to? A sprint or a marathon? It's a marathon. That's why he says run with endurance. So, folks, what, what we need is not a quick start of emotional enthusiasm and then good night. What happens? Oh, no. God wants us to be running the race until we cross the finish line. And for this, we need endurance. I had a friend who was sort of a runner, and I used to run with this friend. This was in the military, too. And we used to get together to run. One day I said to him, so how long are you planning on running today? He said, uh, I'm not exactly sure. When I get to about the two-mile point, I'll, I'll see. He said, I'll see how I feel. I thought, man, I could save you some trouble. I, I know how you feel at the two-mile point. <laughs> you feel pretty stupid for doing this to yourself when you could be sitting home eating bluebell ice cream. I know how you feel. You feel like you're dying for no good reason. You feel ridiculous because you're running, but nobody's chasing you. I know what happens at the two. That is not a good plan for racing. What you need to do at, at the start is determine, I'm going to run until I finish. I'm going to do whatever it takes to finish. I'm going to run light. I'm going to avoid distractions. <laughs> I'm not going to determine whether I should go on. When I'm dying and my lungs are bursting and I can't take another step, that's not how we run the Christian race. Oh, no. We don't determine whether we're going to keep our eyes on Jesus when it gets tough. Oh, no. We say right at the outset, I am born anew to follow the Savior until the Savior comes to get me or I go to be with him. And then the race is over. I need endurance for that. So do you. But we don't quit. You notice I've been using the term race. Well, it's not just me. The writer of this verse in Hebrews actually uses it. Uh, notice he speaks of the race that is set before us. The race that is set before. No runner in ancient Greece ran his or her own course. The runner ran the race that was determined, set for him. Folks, God has charted the course. Think about this for you and for me. He's marked out the path for us. We don't choose our own way. If it feels good, do it. Oh, no. We say, oh, God, lead, and I will follow. And he says, I shall lead. I am your Lord. He's charted the course. We run the route he has marked off. Otherwise, we miss out on the reward. A fellow named Bruce Lockerbie tells this story. It's a true story about a world-class athlete, a woman, long-distance runner of notoriety, invited to an invitational in Connecticut. She drove up 
on the day of the race from New York City where she resided. She went to Connecticut. She was looking for the place of the event, a big event, big monetary prize at the end, world-class runners, but she got lost. So she stopped at a gas station in Connecticut asking for directions, and the attendant there directed her to a place, a race of sorts. She got to this site, and she thought she had found it. There were runners loosening up, but she was a little surprised because not nearly as many runners as she thought would have been there at a race of this caliber, and she didn't even recognize any of the runners. Many of the world-class runners she competed against were not there. But anyway, she rushed to the registration table because she wasn't registered, and the officials, she was so surprised. They were so surprised to see this lady. They recognized her to see her there at this particular race. And they quickly made room for her. Oh, no problem. We'll get you signed up. We'll get you registered. They gave her the number. She goes to the uh, start of the race. Boom, the gun goes off. She runs. And she, uh, she ran easily and won. And, uh, in fact, she beat the second-place runner, uh, a man, by four minutes. She couldn't put it together. Why was this so easy? And then she realized at the end of the race when she got a little certificate and not that big monetary prize, <laughs> she ran the wrong race. She didn't make it to the right race. Folks, if you run the wrong race, you miss out on the reward. You exert yourself, but you're no different than that goofy hamster. Run the race that is set. Aren't you honored and privileged? Is flattered an acceptable word in this case? That transcendent deity, the all-sufficient one who has no needs whatsoever, but only wishes to have communion with those whom he has fashioned in his own image. Aren't you blessed to know he's charted a course for you, a race for you to run in, especially you who have been rejected maybe and abandoned and ill-treated and exploited by significant others in your life. The most significant personage, the giver of life says, but I have a course charted for you. And at the end is a sure and certain reward. That's a great, great honor. Run the race that is set before us. That's what the text says. And in order to run it well, in order to finish well, here's how we do it. The writer tells us in verse 2. It's simple. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Track coaches always tell their athletes uh, when you're in the starting blocks and you come up, your focal point is, and it's usually down there, the finish line. You see what I mean? Because a runner knows all it takes is a little distraction. The crowd, another competitor, you could either trip or, or slow down. That could happen with us in our race. And so we get this marvelous practical exhortation. Fix your eyes on Jesus in the rain. Because you and I, too, can get so distracted by circumstances, can't we? 
I made the mistake before our service tonight of getting on the internet and uh, reviewing some of the news headlines. Part of me says, I, I ought to stay up on stuff. The other part of me says, why? But anyway, I did it, and I filled myself up with grievous news. <laughs> Very discouraging trends and tendencies on all fronts in our world uh, today. And you could get distracted by the environment, by the circumstances we live in. To such an extent, you could get cynical. You could get discouraged. You could slow down in running the race. And so the exhortation is, don't do that. Fix your eyes on Jesus. But wait. Uh, maybe you have, but I have not ever seen Jesus. That's why I'm looking forward to it. But I've not seen him with these eyes. So I really can't apply this, literally, fixing your eyes on Jesus. That's right. It doesn't actually mean that. It means fix your thoughts on Jesus. It means focus your thoughts on him. Just when you're on the verge of getting overwhelmed with anxieties and concerns, and woe is me, isn't everything going right, and all the rest, think about Jesus. Think about him high and lifted up. Think about all he endured. Think about how good he is. Think about his power. Think about how he loves you and knows you by name. Think about where he is right now as a victor who has crossed the finish line. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. That's the key for running the Christian race. And why do we do this? Well, because he's the author and perfecter of faith. That's what it says. He started it, and he can bring it to its end. The faith in you to follow this mighty God has been birthed in you by the author of faith in whom you have put your faith. <laughs> when you put your faith in him, he put his power in you, his very spirit. He authored a hopeful expectation of a victorious race that you're going to run until you finish. He authored that faith, and he's going to finish it. He brings it to completion. You fall now and then. There's some false starts, and you get off track and all the rest. But the Bible says one day we'll be presented before him wholly blameless and beyond reproach. Who's doing that? You? Not really. It's the author and finisher of the faith. So we focus our attention on him. We have a great cloud of witnesses as examples, but the premier example is the Lord Jesus who already crossed the finish line. So the writer says this of him, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame. Death on the cross is excruciating. The Lord Jesus did not see it as a joyous experience. He is no crazed martyr, but he saw it as the pathway to joy. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross? He did not see death, his own, to be the final word. <laughs> He saw after the excruciating nature of the cross, even culminating in death, joy set before him. It was joy uh, when he was reunited with his Father in heaven, but I think it's joy even beyond that. I think it's the Lord's joy in knowing 
as the author and finisher of faith, we're going to cross the finish line and be there with him. For he came to seek and to save the lost. And when the community of the saved finally all together have crossed the finish line, I think the Lord Jesus is going to be filled with joy. And he says, I'm willing to endure the cross for the joy of being reunited with my family, presenting sons and daughters to the Father. The only begotten son presenting to the Father, adopted sons and daughters like you and I. I think it just filled him with joy to the extent that he was willing to endure the agonizing nature of the cross. Uh, by the way, the Greek word for race, listen, is agon. Greek word for race, agon, like in agony. Runners sometimes ran in agonizing pain so as to win the wreath or the prize. Our race sometimes is agonizing, requiring sacrifice and sometimes some pain. But worth it, says our premier example, who for the joy set before him endured the agony of the cross. Remember a guy named Scott Hamilton, gold medalist, figure skater? Unbelievable athlete. Upon winning his first gold medal, uh, he said this. Someone asked me why I was looking at the medal so intently. What I was doing was looking at 16 years of my life. He trained, he sacrificed, he disciplined, he agonized for 16 years to get a gold medal. Quite an accomplishment. How much more should you and I be willing to run the race, even though sometimes it's agonizing for the prize that awaits us, for the joy set before us. And the Lord Jesus is the premier example. Do you know the cross was a form of capital punishment the Romans would not even impose upon their own citizens because it was thought to be so humiliating and degrading? And the Jews on top of it said, cursed is anyone who perishes in this manner. But the Lord Jesus said, I don't care what you think. I'm willing to endure it for the joy. It's not a gold medal. <laughs> for the joy of eternity with my Father and the brethren who ran the race by faith focused on me. And when it was all over, what's the outcome? Well, the text says he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh, my goodness. His endurance resulted in victory on the other side of the finish line. There he sits once for all in the presence of Almighty God, in the place of authority and honor and power. There he lives in the presence of Almighty God, with power to one day bring us there as well as the author and finisher of our faith. Now, I want to close with this. This is really important. I mentioned that this race thing is a metaphor. It's kind of like a figure of speech. So you have to be real careful about reading too much into it. For instance, in an actual race, how many people win the gold medal? One. 
that's usually the first one to cross the line, right? Everyone else lost. <laughs> one, one. Everyone, they might have trained just as hard, disciplined, agonized, just one gets the prize. This is where the illustration breaks down. This does not apply to the race we run. I'll tell you why. We don't win our race by finishing first through effort and agony. We win the race by being invited to run in it. That's it. Listen. In ancient Greece, only a Greek citizen could run in the Olympics. Did you know that? Only a Greek citizen. That Greek citizen did not run in the race so as to become a citizen of Greece. That one ran in the race because he is a citizen of Greece. We are exhorted to run in this race of faith with endurance, not to become a winner in the sight of God, but because we already won. Don't you see? Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. So, so do, you, know, you don't attain heaven by running. <laughs> you attain heaven by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered and died in our place on a cross. And then in light of his pronouncement, a victory over sin and the last enemy death, we run towards him with more energy and fervor and discipline and willingness and commitment and dedication and devotion, especially in this day, than ever, ever before because we already... We don't run to earn our citizenship in heaven. We run because we are citizens of heaven. So I was uh, reading this and the notion of fixing one's attention on the Lord Jesus and my favorite song popped into my mind. I'd appreciate it if you'd sing it with me. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. You see, that's our race. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. We run focused on him. And can you see him just cheering you on? Keep coming. Keep coming. Keep coming. I got your place. It's ready for you. Keep coming. Keep Just a little while longer. Keep coming. Keep, you can do it. I'm the author and perfecter. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. For the joy set before me, I endured. Keep enduring. Keep enduring. There's joy set before you. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Sing it with me, would you? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for charting the course and for giving us a race to run in. We're not wasting our time like that hamster. We're not going round in circles. Our eyes are on the prize, and the prize is forever face-to-face -face communion with you, serving, worshiping, undistractedly, unendingly, and maybe, maybe worthy enough to hear you say, well done, good and faithful runner. We will run, Lord, until the time of your return or until the time of our home going because you are the author and finisher of our faith. Lord Jesus, this we pray with thanksgiving in your name. Amen. Amen.